all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Good morning, and thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And we are going to talk today about your immune system and how you can support your immune system. I get tons and tons of questions from um, from listeners, from just family and friends, as well as patients about how they can boost their immune system. And that's really a loaded word because it kind of is coming at it from not really understanding exactly what the immune system is. So we're going to start there today. And if you have a question or a comment for us, you can always email us at fit at mpbonline.org. So when we say the word boost the immune system, in my mind, that makes it sound like the immune system is this kind of one single solitary thing that we can um, improve by doing X, Y, and Z. And the immune system is actually quite broad in terms of what all goes into the immune system and then the different activities that it has. So, you know, just doing this one thing is not going to boost the entire immune system per se. So I think it's important to think about when we say the immune system, what what is that? What is it doing? So what is its actual job in life? And so it kind of has three kind of big jobs. Um, The first one is to keep bad things out, right? So um, we think about it in terms of pathogens or things that make us sick, like viruses and bacteria and um, fungus and those kinds of things. And so the kind of initial part of our immune system is the part that keeps things out and so keeps us from ever getting um, infected. The second part is kind of if those pathogens get in, right, um, kind of destroying them, kind of the you know, first at the scene, destroying those pathogens. And so we may not even know we got exposed to them because our immune system took care of it and handled it and we didn't get sick. And then there's the third piece of it, which is kind of limiting the damage that these um, pathogens do, right? So we may get sick. But we, our immune system responds to that, and we 
get better, right, over days to weeks, whatever it is that we're getting um, the, that, that we are exposed to. So with those kind of three parts um, or three functions of the immune system, there's lots of different parts of our body that make up that immune response and that immune system. When we talk about systems in the body, a lot of times we think of them in terms of single organs, right? When we say your respiratory system, immediately what comes to mind is your lungs. But there's a whole lot of other parts to your respiratory system. It actually starts in your nose, right, uh, and and goes down through the different tubes uh, and then the little sacs in your lungs. So it's made up of, of other things. When we think about the cardiovascular system, we think about your heart. But there's tons of blood vessels and valves and all these different components of the cardiovascular system. And the immune system is no different there. It is made up of different types of cells and different types of organs. And so if we think back to that first function of the immune system that I mentioned, the keeping the pathogens out, that leads me to kind of the, the biggest um, organ system you can think of that would be related to the immune system, which is your skin right? So your skin and your mucous membranes, and what is a mucous membrane? It is the, the um, tissue that is moist, right? So think about the inside of your mouth, the inside of your nose, your eyeballs, and then of course you have mucous membranes on the inside of your body as well. But in terms of primary defense, which what I mean is the first uh, first stop to keep you from getting sick is your skin and your mucous membranes. Right? So as we talk talk through some of the strategies that we're going to talk about in supporting your immune system, so again, I'm kind of ditching that word boosting it, but just supporting your immune system, uh, I kind of always want you to think about how would we support uh, our skin and our mucous membranes and what keeps those healthy and what uh, what can go wrong if we have some alterations in those things? Um, the stomach and your gut are also part of the immune system. It's not something that we tend to think about, but you've got stomach acid for a reason. And some of that is to destroy any pathogens that make it past your upper uh, mucous membrane, so past the mouth, even though you've got enzymes and stuff in your spit that help to um, uh, shut down some types of infections. And then your gut, um, you know, we've done a show before on the gut microbiome and healthy bacteria in your gut, but a large chunk of your immune function is related back to your gut health. So it's very important to think about. Um, then we think about things like bone marrow and your white blood cells. That's a big, big part of your immune function and probably what people are are referring to when they say, how can I boost my immune function? They're thinking about the different cells that uh, respond to things. And when we're talking about infections, it's going to be white blood cells that respond. And there's lots of different types of white blood cells. And this is not um, a physiology lecture. So I will not bore you with all the different types of, of um, cells and how they respond and those types of things. But we will talk a little bit more about white blood cell response um, in a little bit. Your lymph nodes, that's probably one that a lot of people think about in terms of um, immune function because when we get sick, they often swell. Uh, you may you know, say, well, my glands are swollen in my neck. That's what um, I hear people say a lot, uh, and that's true. They are little kind of bean-shaped pieces of tissue. 
Um, there are many throughout the body and in different areas. And usually wherever they're swollen, um, it's related to an infection or a pathogen in that particular area because they they drain certain areas of our body. But what do lymph nodes do? They filter, right? So they catch a hold of things, and then they mount an, a response to it in that area. So there are um, white blood cells in, the, in that particular area that respond to some of these pathogens as well. Um, your tonsils and your adenoids, also part of the immune system um, and actually part of the lymphatic system in general. And they help with antibodies, um, which is a, a different, again, a different part of the immune system. And then you've got some other organs that are also involved, things like the thymus gland, um, which is where our T cells mature. And when we talk about cell-related immunity, there are T cells and B cells, and they do different things. And then your spleen, which also kind of filters out damaged blood cells and stores white blood cells there. Um, you know, and all of those go into making up a healthy, well-functioning immune system. And really what we're striving for in terms of the immune system is balance, right? So we don't necessarily want an immune system that is just um, overstimulated, right? So again, when we think about that word boost, uh, a hyper-functioning immune system is not necessarily where we want to be either, right? Um, there are autoimmune uh, disorders where your immune system doesn't uh, quite recognize your own body as being its own body and starts to attack different things. Um, so what we're striving for in terms of immune function is, again, balance, that we have all of the ingredients, so to speak, that we need to prevent an infection um, from ever getting in, from um, preventing symptoms from developing or preventing um, severe significant uh, damage once those things do occur. And so I hope that kind of helps shape a little bit what I'm talking about when I'm talking about there's not going to be one supplement that we take that just magically makes our immune system function so much better. Um, I know there's a lot of cool marketing out there about different things and all you got to do is take a Take a walk down the vitamin aisle at the store and you will see multiple things that, that claim um, to be boosting uh, your immune system or supporting your immune system. And there's absolutely some, some science behind some of these things like vitamin C um, and immune function. Um, again, I always like you to think about where could I get this from a real food source when we're thinking about supplements, um, in particular vitamin C, which is going to live in your fruits and veggies, right? Those big, um, pretty bright, colorful fruits and veggies. Um, but also just think about in terms of the immune system, does that claim make sense? Um, and can can we support or boost the immune system with this particular ingredient? All right, now that we've kind of gone over what exactly the immune system is, I'm going to go through some of the lifestyle strategies that we, of course, use in Lifestyle Clinic to help with a variety of things, but I'm going to tie them specifically into um, how they have impacts on your immune system functioning and how we can make plans in each one of those areas to help support a healthy immune system. So where I want to start is back at the beginning when I talked about the first line of defense for our immune system, which is our skin and our mucous membranes. And so if we're really looking for ways to support our immune system, and 
honestly, when we're saying support immune system, we're meaning not get sick, right? So if we're looking for ways to do that, then we got to start with kind of the first line soldiers that are there, which is maintaining a really good, healthy skin barrier and also making sure that our mucous membranes are nice and healthy and are doing what they're supposed to do. So from a skin standpoint, When we think about breaks in the skin and how our immune system would then be affected, it's largely going to be related to skin-type infections, right? So maybe a cut that doesn't heal, um, uh, an ulcer that forms and doesn't heal, rashes, those types of things. And so if we want good, healthy skin as that first barrier um, of defense in our body, then hydration is important. Right. And so that is also important when we talk about mucous membranes. And so I talked about what those mucous membranes are, um, but the ones that we can kind of readily see um, when we just are looking at someone's your eyeballs, your nose, your mouth. Okay? Um, you also have mucous membrane, uh, mucous linings that line a lot of your um, organs in your body, as well as your GI tract, um, uh, your urinary system, vaginal area, all of those different types of things. But If we're trying to prevent illness, right, we want those mucous membranes to be able to do their job in terms of keeping pathogens out. And so our respiratory tract, which, of course, is one of the mucous membranes I'm talking about, is lined with little fine hairs called cilia. Um, And you, I'm not talking about your your nose hairs, although they do kind of help to filter out things. I'm talking about little kind of tiny microscopic um, hairs that help trap things that we may breathe in and actually um, they kind of they kind of beat they kind of wave and move and one of those functions is to kind of help us get those pathogens that they've caught back up and out right so when we sneeze or when we cough and getting those things out um, that can only happen when the cilia are able to move around okay are able to do their beat or their wave and there are some things that damage that and then if the mucus is too thick it makes it harder to get up and get out of your body And so hydration is important for not only that good, healthy skin, but also for that good, healthy mucous membrane and the ability to clear pathogens or just get them out of you. Okay, so hydration starts, of course, with our intake of things like water. As much as I love coffee, right, and I do very, 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 very much, it is not going to hydrate you per se, especially if it's caffeinated, right? Caffeinated things actually tend to dehydrate us more because they make us pee more. So things like alcohol, which we also tend, this time of the year, we tend to start to consume a little more of that because we're entering the holiday season. And so there's usually more parties that we're at, that type of thing that have alcoholic beverages there, um, which those are going to dehydrate you as well. So making water your first choice in terms of a beverage is a great idea, not only from, you know, what I love to talk about on here, which is uh, picking and choosing our calories in the right right way to support heart health, but in terms of just overall hydration. I get asked a lot, how much water should you drink? And that's going to vary depending on a lot of different things, Uh, medical conditions that you may have, like uh, heart, um, you know, if you've got heart failure or kidney failure, those types of things may affect how much fluid you need to have on board 
where you work, right? If you're inside sitting at a desk versus if you're a construction worker outside in the heat, um, your activity level is going to impact that. But a good general rule of thumb in terms of how much water you should be drinking is it should make your urine look light yellow, like straw colored, right? Um, It shouldn't look like straight up water, but it also shouldn't really have that yellow or amber or even brown color to it. That indicates we're not getting enough water on board. Um, So hydration starts with that, making sure that we get enough water. And my kind of strategy for that, because we've already talked about my love of coffee. So while I'm waiting on my coffee to brew, I have um, a cup that holds 16 ounces that sits right beside my refrigerator. And I drink that while I'm waiting on my coffee to brew so that I automatically go ahead and get my day started with two cups. That may not be realistic for you. Um, I work with a lot of patients who absolutely detest water. And so if I told them to chug 16 ounces of water before they started their day, they would look at me like, no way, lady, um, and they would not do it. So think about what's realistic for you. Maybe it's a half a glass of water that you start with, right? But just start thinking about more water and different strategies for getting that on board. The second piece of hydration is how we keep our mucous membranes moist and hydrated, right? We tend to get more infections in the fall and winter, and that's from a variety of reasons. Um, And no, it's not just because it's cold outside. I know everybody's grandmama probably told them, put on a jacket so you don't catch a cold. And that's... um, I love grandmamas, but that's not, there's not a ton of science behind that. Um, But what there is science behind is one, we tend to be in closer contact with people um, during the fall and winter just because um, it's cold outside. And so we tend to gather more indoors than we do in the um, summer. And then also the air is drier. So there is not as much. Um, moisture in the air. So the air is not hydrated as well as it is um, in other seasons. And so the air that we're breathing in tends to dry out our mucous membranes, which can make that mucus thicker um, and make those little hairs not able to beat and wave as effectively. So we can do things to support that as well. Um, You can look at the use of a humidifier in your home. Uh, I do, especially if you're prone to nosebleeds or um, uh, feeling like your nasal passages are really dry and irritated, a humidifier is um, not a bad idea. They come in a variety of types. Um, There are warm mist humidifiers and cool mist humidifiers. And I know in the winter, warm anything sounds like a good idea, but it is not. Um, Warm uh, mist humidifiers can be a a burn hazard, especially if you've got little kiddos or folks that may um, have a little bit of an unsteady gait and bump into things, that kind of stuff. If you were to knock that over the water and that can be quite warm and can cause some damage to the skin. And then also um, warm and moist breeds uh, bacteria and uh, mold. So those are not your best strategy. A cool mist humidifier 
would be a better option for that. Um, now, you can't have like one humidifier for your whole 3,000 square foot house. It's not going to do that. Um, but, you know, keeping it in the bedroom uh, at nighttime is a good strategy for helping to keep those airways um, nice and lubricated. Um, another option is the use of saline nasal spray. I'm not talking about Afrin or any of the other medicated sprays for your nose, just good old saline. I like the one that is a mist, not the one that's like a stream because I feel like I'm drowning uh, when I use the stream one, but the little mist one. Um, I actually get it in the like the baby section because um, it's really, really very gentle and I'm just trying to um, you know wet those passages. And then just a little teeny tiny bit of um, like Vaseline on a Q-tip just around the edges of your nose, especially if you get really dry nasal passages at nighttime can be good. Now, do not put a whole glop of Vaseline up your nose. That is not what I am saying. Um, Just a little tiny amount of Vaseline on the edges of the nose to keep those things nice and moist. So those are some great kind of beginning strategies to think about in terms of hydrating and keeping those mucous membranes and skin nice and healthy. Um, The last piece on your skin, uh, we tend to wash our hands more in the fall and winter as well, which is a wonderful thing. Okay, I very much encourage you to wash your hands. But the temperature of the water does matter. We tend to think hotter the better. Um, Hot water dries the skin out a lot, so there's no need to try to actually burn your skin off when you're washing your hands. Just pick a kind of lukewarm temperature when you're doing that. Um, Stick to um, soaps that um, are kind of pH balanced, so there's no need for an antibacterial soap, uh, so to speak. Uh, Make sure you dry really good by patting and then use a really nice um, lotion to help rehydrate that skin so that it doesn't get cracks and and, um, kind of fissures and things like that in it that can get infections. Um, There are lots of good lotions out there. Usually the ones the dermatologists recommend when we have them on the show are CeraVe um, uh, or Aquaphor. Those are, are good ones that they recommend there. And then the big, big piece of keeping that respiratory tract healthy, keeping those little cilia, those little hairs moving like they should and helping us cough up stuff and get it out is smoking. Um, And that damages things in a variety of ways. Okay. It damages those little hairs. It actually paralyzes them. So they can't beat or wave. Um, And then over time, it actually destroys them. So you don't have that kind of first line of defense on the things that you may have inhaled um, to stop them and help get them back out. It also makes it much, much harder to clear your mucus. So harder to cough stuff up and get it out. Um, that's kind of the the big thinking in terms of smoking from a, a much smaller scale or on the on the more chemical level um, it affects how the white blood cells are able to respond to things so when we have an injury in our body or an infection in our body little signals are sent out that tell the white blood cells hey guys come here we've got a problem the fancy word for that is chemotaxis right chemicals saying hey get in a taxi and come over here not really what that is but that's the picture in my brain when i learned it many many years ago Um, And so cigarette smoking actually damages that signaling ability so that you can't get the you you don't get the message that we need more white blood cells here. And then um, white blood cells also uh, carry out a function called phagocytosis, which is like kind of engulfing and 
and eating the, those pathogens so that they're not able to kind of continue to make you sick. And smoking impairs that ability as well. So we don't get enough white cells where we need them to go. And then when they get there, they're not as able to shut down that, uh, that pathogen, which if we think back to the very beginning, we were talking about keeping pathogens out and then destroying those pathogens. So cigarette smoking impairs those first two functions of the immune system. We've done lots of shows on smoking cessation, and you can find those in their entirety by searching for Southern Remedy wherever you get your podcasts um, and looking through those. But I want to give you a couple of resources um, before we go for our next break that um, are really important in terms of um, smoking cessation. Um, There is um, really power in developing a quit plan, right? And the first step of that plan is um, your why, right? Why do you want to stop smoking or stop using tobacco products? I think I've laid out a pretty good case for why we should be doing that in terms of um, your immune system. But of course, it increases cancer risk, it can elevate your blood pressure and put you at risk for other cardiometabolic uh, disorders. So finding your why is going to be really important. And then the second step is setting a date, right? And my tip there is don't set it too far out. Don't say like six months from now, I'm going to stop smoking. I usually recommend trying to pick something in the next week or two. Um, And then don't pick a stressful date. Like if you're starting a new job, probably not the date you want to pick to stop smoking, right? Two big stressors at once is going to be a lot. Or uh, maybe your kid's getting married. That might not be the right time to do that, right? So think about your likelihood of success with those types of things. Um, Another motivator that I use a lot with folks when we're working on smoking cessation is calculate your cost savings, Okay, so how much you spend on um, your your tobacco product um, and, and what your cost savings will be. So on average, of course, it depends on the brand you smoke, where you get it, all that kind of stuff. A one pack per day user um, can save about $2,220 a year. So I usually encourage folks to think about what they're going to do with that extra money, right? And maybe it's something fun. Maybe it's a trip you've been wanting to take, right? But kind of go ahead and say, well, I could use that money for this, right? Um, Know your triggers. So, you know, if um, after lunch is the time that you normally really crave a cigarette, think about what we can put after that, right? Or maybe if there's a group of your coworkers that always go out for a smoke break, right? If you go out with them, that may be a big trigger for you. And those are individual things that you're going to have to think through. Also, you need to think through how you're going to manage those cravings, right? Um, So distraction works well. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes folks choose um, a a lot of snack foods to kind of replace that craving, which um, we can, there are different strategies that we can use for that. But we do have to think about what we're going to do when a craving hits. Um, And then set yourself up for success by kind of harnessing the resources you have available. So we've got smokefree.gov is a wonderful reference. We've got the uh, quit line, which is 1-800-QUIT-NOW. And then here in Mississippi, we have the ACT Center that is at UMC. Um, That is ACT2, like the number two, quit.org. Or the number for that is 601-815-1180. 
If you need more information about those, please feel free to give me an email. Um, Our address is fit at mpbonline.org, and I'm happy to get those resources out to you. So the next topic uh, that we're, the next strategy that we're going to discuss in terms of immune function and supporting that good, healthy immune system is exercise. And if you're a regular listener to the show, you know um, that I frequently talk about the benefits of exercise, and that's normally, uh, we use that in terms of cardio metabolic fitness, right? So I use it when we talk about things like high blood pressure or blood sugar control or lowering your cholesterol or losing weight. And the beauty of exercise is that it's beneficial for all of those things, um, but it also plays a role on um, your immune system and how well it can support things. And what's really, really interesting about exercise and how it works with the immune system is that yes, it's great, but it depends on the intensity of that exercise and how long you're doing it. Those are things called intensity and duration. And a lot of times we talk on the show about um, the correct amount of exercise or the goal that you kind of should be shooting for in terms of exercise. And we say, you know, 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise. So that's getting at the intensity, which was moderate, and the duration, which is 150 minutes, right? But that's broken out over a week, okay? So when we're talking about intensity, that's going to be different for each person, right? Depending on how um, fit you already are. Whereas um, I might can teach a Zumba class and call that moderate to vigorous intensity. Someone who's never taken a Zumba class before or hasn't been exercising, when they start, they may feel like that class is very, very vigorous, depending on their fitness level to start with. Same deal if you're not a runner and you start a running program. Um, Your level of intensity is going to be a little bit different than someone who's maybe a trained distance runner. So in general, when we're talking intensity, I like to use something called the talk test to tell us how intense our activity is. Um, So light intensity, uh, physical activity on the talk test is where really your breathing doesn't change. You're still able to carry on a conversation. So this would likely be a light stroll. Um, Maybe you're walking to go grab a coffee with someone, that kind of thing. You're still able to to talk and converse normally with those kinds of things. Moderate intensity um, is where the breathing is kind of picked up a little bit more, um, where um, you can still talk, but you really wouldn't be able to sing If you've ever heard me sing, you would think that is a very good thing. Um, I do not. I have not been blessed with a voice um, for singing. Um, And then vigorous intensity is like you can't sing. Um, Your breathing is much more um, rapid and um, you can still talk, but you kind of pause in between every couple of words. Right. And so for the vast majority of people, we want you to be at that moderate intensity level. Right. If we're trying to get good heart benefits, weight loss, those types of things. That's our goal that we want you to be at. Remember, you don't have to start there, but that's where we ultimately want you to be. Well, what about in terms of immune function? Well, that's where we want you to be there as well. When we look at exercise, 
it does improve immune function, okay? It improves the ability of the immune system to kind of see those pathogens. And I don't mean see with their eyeballs, but through those different chemical things that we talked about earlier, those different pathways, um, and able to respond to those things appropriately with sending the right number and right types of cells. That happens with moderate intensity with less than 60 minutes of duration, okay? And when we make that a pattern, that helps support our immune function. We also get reduced stress hormones, okay? And so your stress hormones, things like cortisol, right? If those stay too high for too long, you actually suppress out the immune system. And so reducing those stress hormones is a good thing. Okay, so moderate intensity for less than 60 minutes is beneficial for our immune function. What we want to be careful of is longer, more intense bouts of physical activity. When we do that, we actually see kind of the inverse start to happen where all of the the um, good beneficial things that happen to the immune system that go up. With moderate exercise, they start to go the wrong way, And then the inflammatory markers that go down, again, with that moderate intensity activity, go up, okay? So that doesn't mean that you can't train for uh, more intensive exercise, right? There are folks out there who train for marathons, who do more intense sports. There are different strategies that we have to employ, right? We have to pulling in some nutritional strategies and some other different things to help support the immune system in folks that train like that. Um, But your average run-of-the-mill Joe or Josie, we want to uh, make sure that we're not overtraining in terms of our um, uh, the impact it's going to have on our immune system, okay? There is something called a J-curve, which sounds fancy, but really if you just picture what a J looks like in your head, not a cursive J, a a block letter J, um, the point of the hook, if you drew a straight line, a horizontal line across from that, everything below that line would indicate um, kind of uh, improved immune function and things above that would be less immune function. Okay. Um, and when we are looking at things like upper respiratory tract infections, okay, so colds, sinus infections, um, just the general crud, okay, when we have um, that moderate intensity, um, shorter duration exercise, we actually see less upper respiratory tract infections. And then the top part of the J above that line um, is actually a two to six fold increase in upper respiratory tract infections when we have um, long, extensive, um, highly intense physical activity sessions. Okay, so we too much. It can be too much of a good thing uh, in terms of our immune function. So we just want to make sure that we uh, balance that and that we build an exercise plan that supports your goals. And so building an exercise plan. Takes a little bit of practice, takes a little bit of skill, um, but it starts with being really real and realistic with yourself about where you are in terms of your fitness journey, what you would enjoy doing, and then what you realistically would do. Uh, and so 
thinking through those things, you then build a plan, right? And you get real specific. Like, I'm going to do 10 minutes of walking on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 9 a.m. with my cousin Sylvia at X, Y, and Z Park, right? You make yourself a really, really specific and measurable plan to begin to start that exercise. And any movement is better than no movement. So if that's five minutes, that's good too, right? Just get started. All right, we do have a caller on the line. So I want to go over and actually to Eupora and talk with Rachel. Good morning, Rachel. How can I help you? So I'm wondering um, how do antioxidants relate to our immune system? And uh, does coffee have antioxidants that are good for us? Also, is instant coffee, uh, does it have the same properties insofar as antioxidants as does brewed coffee? What, those are all wonderful questions. And so I'll start kind of with the first one, with antioxidants. And actually, last week on the show, we did a whole show on the on uh, anti-inflammatory diet. And so we talked a lot about antioxidants. So if you didn't catch that show, I would recommend um, going to uh, anywhere you get your podcasts and searching for Southern Remedy and listening there. But antioxidants, okay. yeah, ab- absolutely. And antioxidants do play a role in immune function, Okay. One, they uh, are anti-inflammatory, so they shut down kind of some of those those um, negative effects of, of inflammation. And so there are tons of different antioxidants out there. Um, we think of the of the majority of them in, in plants, right? So in phytonutrients, um, uh, coffee does have um, some antioxidant properties into it there as well. Um, coffee, I feel like, is one of those things that one week we'll have a study that says coffee it is wonderful for you and you should drink it. And then the next week we'll come along and they'll say coffee is terrible and you shouldn't drink it. And that, exactly. <laughs> and that is very common in nutrition-related research, right? Because when we're looking at individual specific things, um, you can find evidence that will kind of push one way or the other, right? Where we kind of need to camp out is the fact that there's no miracle food, right? And no kind of magic anything. And so if you don't like coffee, adding coffee to your diet is probably not a strategy that's going to be good for your health in general because you're probably going to add some things to it that make it not so healthy for you, like a whole bunch of sugar and cream, right? Um, Where in balance is the key there, right? So moderate coffee consumption um, is largely thought to be um, a a healthy practice as long as we're not loading it up with a bunch of things like cream and sugar and artificial sweeteners and all those different kinds of things. And so moderate consumption, you know, two to three cups a day on that. Now your last question which was about instant coffee and its antioxidant um, content I actually don't know um, I've never actually looked into that I'm not a big instant coffee drinker although I have I have had some before when I worked as a night shift nurse but that's what I'm gonna have to kind of kind of look at and see um, what happens in the processing of it right the freeze-dried nature of it and see if that changes the content that it has of some of these uh, healthful properties uh huh. Yeah, I I've been thinking about that lately because I do drink instant coffee. Mm-hmm. I'm not a coffee connoisseur. <laughs> I just like it to boost uh, my energy level. Yeah. And uh, I just wondered if instant coffee is beneficial uh, the way that we sometimes hear that 
uh, brewed coffee. Is. Yeah, well, I'm definitely going to take a look into that, and I'll uh, I'll talk about it on the the next show to make sure we we touch on that. But in terms, kind of circling back to your energy and kind of wanting more energy, look at some of your other areas as well. Um, overall hydration in general. If we're a little if we're dehydrated just from a water intake amount, that can make us feel sluggish and tired. Um, as well as our sleep. Um, if we're not sleeping well, um, getting the appropriate uh, quantity and quality of sleep that will flush out in um, fatigue. And then also if we have um, kind of untreated or undertreated depression and anxiety, those will both contribute to um, kind of feeling like not having as much energy. Now, always um, get, you know, get a visit with your healthcare provider to make sure there's not any um, kind of metabolic reason or, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, anemia or, you know, some type of deficiency that needs to be uh, rectified, thyroid issues, all those different kinds of things. But by the time folks get to me in lifestyle, they've usually had all those things done and we really start to attack it from a a sleep, a stress um, and a nutrition standpoint. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Well, uh, I don't drink much coffee, just a cup in the morning. Well, if you enjoy uh, it, keep drinking it. Okay. (laughs) Thank you for your help, Doctor. Absolutely. You have a great Uh, rest of your Monday. And you do the same. All right. Bye-bye. Oh, that was a great one. So, like, that's that's the take-home. If you enjoy it, sure, have some. But if you don't enjoy it, just adding it to your diet is not going to be uh, kind of the magic there. All right. Uh, we're not going to have time to get to the full kind of content on this last one that I wanted to talk about, and that's fine. Um, but it does relate back to our last call that we just had about sleep. And sleep does affect your immune function. Short sleep duration, even for one night. Okay, reduces the function of your immune cells. Okay, um, in particular, something called natural killer cells, which can help with, um, uh, of course, cancer. Um, you know, kind of scavenging those abnormal cells, as well as um, viral infections. Right. So, if you were ever in college and you stayed up all night cramming for a test, and then you were sick a couple of days later, there is some science behind those things. Right. That it does suppress out your ability to kind of um, handle viral pathogens, and you may get get a cold from that. Um, it also increases your inflammatory markers, which can make heart disease worse. Um, but what I found really, really interesting is uh, short sleep duration. which normal sleep duration is seven to nine hours, right? So short sleep duration produced about a 50% reduction in antibody production after the flu vaccine. So you just, it makes your flu shot not work as good, right? And so uh, we want to help our immune system however we can. So if we really are looking for ways to support our immune system, then looking at getting some sleep there helps our vaccines work better, which is absolutely perfect for this time of the year. So it does make you more likely to catch viral infections and get sick from those kinds of things. So improving your sleep, again, is something that we've talked about on the show as well. But the first step is starting with really being honest with yourself about how much sleep you're getting and whether it is good restful sleep. And if you're not hitting that seven hour mark, then we want to look for ways to change the times, right? Can we go to bed a little bit earlier? Can we wake up a little bit later? Um, For a lot of us, the waking up a little bit later is not a point that we can move on because 
the world starts at a certain time and we have to be up and ready for that. So how can we back up our bedtime a little bit? And then building in a sleep environment that helps to support restful sleep by having a dark room, meaning no television and no cell phone or other types of screens that we're utilizing there, as well as being nice and cool and quiet. All right, guys, we are all out of time for today. This show went by really, really quickly. I do want to remind you that Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, and funding is provided in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and support from listeners. You've been listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. 